Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to discuss the dark arts of grafting plants and the molecular basis of this age-old practice. Now, combining two plants together is something that we think about all the time in plant breeding. But what about if we're taking this on a very different macro level, taking piece of one plant and adding the genetics of another as two separate pieces that now have to find harmony together as one single plant? There's a lot of interesting edges to this in terms of horticulture, and it has huge economic importance. So today we're going to talk to an expert who doesn't just cover the horticultural applications, and also the molecular and cellular basis for why it really works. We're speaking with Dr. Charles Melnick. He's the group leader in the Division of Plant Sciences at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Thanks very much for having me, Kevin. And where is that located in Sweden? So I'm located uh, in central Sweden, about an hour outside of Stockholm in a university city called Uppsala. Are you from Sweden originally? I'm Canadian. So I've been living in Sweden for about the past three years. Hey, how's the poutine over there? Yeah, we're we're seriously lacking it. I'm not a, a huge poutine eater, so I have to say that I'm not uh, I'm not too lonely here with uh, without the poutine. <laughs> oh, well, at least you still have hockey. Yes, they love hockey here, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Swedish hockey players in Canada, so that's uh, that's more familiar. I really appreciate having you on. I personally spend some time on grafting, and I've done lots of different ones, from pawpaws to loquats to all kinds of things, and. This podcast and my training are generally gravitating towards molecular solutions to problems. And, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? But when we practice grafting, we can actually do some other interesting things towards the genetic improvement of crops. And there's some great examples of this happening uh, right now in many places. So how old is this practice of grafting? And what are the problems that they were trying to solve? So grafting is a, an extremely old process. I mean, we have records dating back to the 5th century BC uh, where people are describing uh, using grafting um, with, with fruit trees. Um, and it's been probably practiced even well before that. So we're talking about a couple thousand years. People have been doing grafting for such a long time, essentially to make clones, to do asexual propagation. So somebody would discover an apple tree that was very delicious. They really liked it. They wanted to take seeds from that, plant them, but those seeds were not true breeding. So they were too heterozygous. And the solution was, of course, to cut off a branch from that tree, try to stick it in the soil. The branch would not root because apple trees don't work that way. You can do it nowadays with, with rooting hormones as possible. But back then, two or 3,000 years ago, they couldn't. And they actually discovered that the most efficient way to do things, to, to, to clonally propagate, was through grafting. So they would take that apple tree, the one that they really liked, and then uh, graft it onto a, a, a rootstock. 
And it's thought actually grafting allowed the domestication of a lot of fruits associated things, things like apples, plums, and pears uh, really uh, took off with grafting. I could see how it was important to commerce, that you could have a very economically important plant, uh, something everybody liked, and then be able to take twigs and add them to the dud plants that gave lousy fruits or the ones that came out of a genetic cross that weren't terribly useful, but could support the good plant if it was added on. But sometimes history tells us that this kind of tool was really the difference between success and absolute economic ruin. So like uh, phylloxera and grapes. So could you tell us a little bit about that and some of the other ways that it's been used? Well, that's right. I mean, so grafting was initially used for clonal propagation to make more of your favorites. But, you know, more recently, you know, the last couple hundred years, there's been a whole, lot of, uh, a whole lot of other uses that people have been using grafting for. And a really nice example is phylloxera. So it was an insect that uh, eats grapevines, specifically the ones we use for, for grape, uh, for wine production. It arrived in Europe in the mid-1800s and basically went through the European uh, vineyards wiping out plants, and there was no natural resistance to this. So farmers were losing crops. It devastated a huge portion of the European vineyards. And uh, the basic two solutions were found. One is hybridization for resistance, which people didn't like because they want to save their favorite wine varieties. And the other way to actually do it was to actually start grafting. And this insect, phylloxera, primarily attacks the roots of the plant, killing the plants. And by grafting on an American grape, onto the rootstock, you could actually confer the resistance to this insect in the roots, thereby saving the whole plant. And then within a, a, a couple decades, basically the entire European wine industry was grafted, uh, saving uh, European wines as we know them, saving all of our favorite varieties. And the real debate nowadays, of course, is this, is, is this has changed the quality of the wines. Has this actually changed the flavor? Because we now have these American rootstocks grafted to our European uh, favorite varieties like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, but that's a really cool thing to investigate because you could, I'm sure, be able to analyze something on its own roots versus something on that rootstock in terms of its volatiles, its uh, sugars, its uh, amenability to being used in different wines. I mean, it really seems like an interesting question to see how much the roots change the quality of the end product because we know mm -hmm. that happens with other plants. I mean, it's certainly other crops do have uh, a benefit or some sort of control from the root, rootstock that is imparted onto that scion. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, people are doing those type of analyses. There's there's not a huge number of differences when you consider they have basically half the plant as a, as a completely different species. There's still regions of Europe that don't use grafting, so they're basically resistant to phylloxera. So you can buy some of these sort of old vines uh, and you can try them. Another really great example is actually in Chile. Uh, so in Chile, they don't use grafting. They don't have phylloxera there. So if you've ever tried Chilean wines, which many of us have, um, then those are, those are the, uh, the, I guess, the, the pure wines that have not been grafted. I always think of Carmenere, which was able to survive phylloxera by going to Chile, where you can still get Carmenere wine. And I guess the other big question is, how common is this practice commercially? It seems like it's picking up speed that the idea of, of attaching one plant's genetics to another is something that's being used more and more in horticultural applications. So tell me a little bit about that. What's happening these days in this area? So grafting is, a, it's, I'd say it's extremely widespread. Uh, traditionally, it was mostly used for uh, woody plants. Uh, we see it a lot in 
um, things like orchards, you know, apples, pears, uh, you know, grapes, the vineyards are very, very common. Um, we're also seeing it nowadays quite often in horticulture, roses, rhododendrons, a lot of our woody shrubs that we want to be propagated. And more commonly, I'd say in the last 50 or 60 years, grafting has really taken off with vegetables. So it's now extremely common to do grafting in tomatoes and peppers, eggplants, uh, melons, cucumbers. And those are primarily done for disease resistance. So you're making things more vigorous, more resistant to diseases. And by some estimates, there's over a billion plants that are being grafted every year. Uh, one factory in China is producing around 200 million plants a year. And for the most part, these are all being grafted by hand. So it's a huge amount of work being put into an industry that has quite a high cost, but the benefits far outweigh the costs. Yeah, that's what blew me away on this is that here they're grafting tomatoes and melons. So these specialty crops that, you know, might last a season and there's still economic benefit to doing that and doing it by hand. I mean, millions and millions of plants that people are doing it at, at one time. Have you had an opportunity to see this? No, I haven't, uh, unfortunately. I mean, here in Sweden, we actually do quite a bit of grafting in the forestry industry. Uh, but by the scales that are done in East Asia, where I would say grafting of vegetables is most common, you know, we're talking about a couple hundred th thousand plants a year here that are being grafted for the forestry industry. Um, and I've had a chance to look at some of those operations. Um, but, you know, it's, again, people who are, you know, extremely skilled. They're basically doing it like an art. And they can do maybe, you know, 20 or 30 grafts an hour. When you consider you have to do 100,000, that's a lot of time. Yeah, you should see down here in the citrus industry because everything is a, a scion on a, of some improved variety, usually on one of these classic rootstocks of citrus. And they one guy goes by and cuts the tea inside the bark of the rootstock, and the other one shoves in a little chip, a little bud, and then uh, goes ahead and wraps it. And they can do like it seems like hundreds of them in an hour it's pretty amazing at the at the rate at which they do this but what really freaks me out is the black box nature of this i mean this is a human imposed activity so how do what what are we exploiting in the evolution of a plant's um, healing or defense or whatever in order to make this work because it seems like there there's this isn't something that would naturally be there is it well, that's right. I mean, it's such an artificial process. So the, by the definition, grafting should involve a cutting process and sticking together of two plants. And there's some precedence in nature. So there's actually examples that some plants that can actually fuse stems with each other. Uh, English ivy is a really nice example. And there's also some vines in the tropic that you basically see some of these figs and ficuses that grow into each other. Um, if you look around a normal forest, you don't see a lot of these fusion events. But below the ground, we think that root grafting is incredibly common. So a lot of trees are actually fusing roots with each other. Um, you know, we think there's various reasons they might be doing this, but it's typically the same species. So they're not grafting very commonly to different species. So there's this one idea that we have natural grafting, these root fusions, whether that's the reason that we actually see or that grafting works today as we do it artificially is hard to say. But what I think is happening is there's a wound healing process here. So plants in general are extremely good at healing wounds, whether that's from wind damage, snow damage, ice, they get cracks in the bark, they get branches that are breaking, and they have an ability to basically form regenerative tissue and reconnect things across that. And I think grafting is really a fundamental output of this ability to heal their wounds that we can then manipulate and use for uh, horticulture and agriculture. And that's what's really cool is that when you look at plants in general, you have uh, things that tend to happen on glacial time periods. 
they uh, maybe a long time before they're competent to flower from juvenility, or maybe uh, you know other processes that just just take time. But in this case, this process is extremely rapid. And I know I've been working with things like um, loquats, for instance. You can graft them, and within a week, you see the bud swelling and really starting to uh, show evidence of that attachment and becoming one with their uh, host plant. And so there is this very rapid response that's happening. But the main reason people are doing this is to control some sort of facet of the physiology of the scion. And a lot of this is either dwarfing, but one of the big ones is to accelerate flowering. So you plant this plant from seed, there's a certain juvenility period before it's competent to flower, yet you can really bypass that in a grafted plant of identical age. Why does that work? Yeah, so I mean, there's, I mean, that, that's right. So, you know, a couple thousand years ago, we were doing grafting for asexual propagation, but now primarily grafting has moved on from that. We're doing it for things like disease resistance and trying to change the properties of the plants to make them better. And, you know, uh, there's, there's two, you know, uh, general ideas here. One is fairly easy for at least me to understand, and that is something like disease resistance. So if you want resistance to a disease in the roots, you can put in a new rootstock that's disease resistance, and then the whole plant becomes resistant. A uh, nice example with grapes. It's also the case with flowering. So when you go to the nursery and you want to buy a tree that's, you know, a meter tall, three or four feet tall, and you already want it to flower and produce fruit, you can actually take a branch from a very old tree that naturally fruits, you graft it onto a very, very young tree, and actually that branch still thinks it's an old tree so it'll continue to fruit and flower so it's a really nice way that we can get things to flower much much earlier than you would ever expect a plant being that small which is very useful for people in their gardens uh, to have you know such young and small trees already fruiting something that's a little bit harder for us to understand are these things where you know the roots are actually influencing the timing of the flowering of the shoots Uh, There's some evidence that viruses in the roots can actually cause this. So some root stalks of apple trees are infected with viruses. And these viruses actually seem to then move into the scion, the top part of the graph, and actually cause more flowering to occur, and perhaps even earlier flowering. Also, grafting is a stressful process. And we know that when plants are stressed out, their, their, their inclination often is to reproduce. So it could be just the grafting itself is actually speeding up things like flowering. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's some interesting compatibility things that happen when the top half doesn't match the bottom half. It's kind of like the stress that you would have if you were walking around all day in latex pants. Not that I, I hear, you know, that that's what would happen. It, it, it also may affect your ability to reproduce <laughs> or at least find a suitable mate. So, you know, for there's that. But that's one yeah. of the things that you can think about in terms of this incompatibility between the top and bottom. That's right. Yeah, I think a nice example is dwarfing. So, you know, if, if we want a plant to be dwarfed, you know, a lot of questions, how do we actually get that rootstock to change the size of the, the top part of the tree? Uh, and, you know, one nice example is like this analogy, like you said, um, you know, you put on something that's way too small, the root system is too small to support that tree. And then the consequence is the tree is actually going to become much smaller, which is a, a huge advantage to, to, to farmers and people in orchards to have smaller trees for harvesting. Okay, all this is great at the macro level, and we see these effects, but what's happening right at that junction? And you did a really nice paper on this. So could you please explain the um, cellular and molecular events that are occurring 
right at ground zero, right where the rootstock meets the scion. How does this happen and what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the physiology of the graft junction formation is fairly well described. We've known about this, you know, for well over 100 years. People have been looking through, you know, taking cross sections of the junction. And initially just everything dies. You know, you can imagine you've made a cut and you have this sort of zone of necrosis that's actually forming. And, you know, immediately the cells recognize there's been a wound and they need to heal themselves. So we're thinking within a day or two, those plants are already trying to rebuild the damaged cell walls. They're secreting things like pectins and other carbohydrates. And they're actually already starting to get very, very early stages of cell division and cell de-differentiation. So we have underlying stem cells that are going to be activated at the wound site. And we're also going to have existing cell populations that are probably going to change their fates. Very quickly after grafting, so, you know, one or two days, the plant is having this massive stress response. It's really trying to close things up, uh, repair, clear away damaged cells. A couple days later, then you're going to start forming this this massive stem cell-like tissue that we call callus. And this callus is basically going to fill in the wound site and try to, to, to fill it as best as possible. And this callus formation process can last anywhere from a couple days to even a couple weeks, depending on how big the hole is and how much of a gap needs to be filled. And this callus is basically, in a sense, it's pluripotent. It doesn't really have any identities. Uh, once the callus makes a nice connection between the two halves, then the plant is actually going to start putting hormones flowing through that callus to then differentiate new tissues to regenerate our stem or whatever tissue was originally wounded. And when I think of regeneration and I think of uh, differentiation, I'm thinking of vascular tissue. That's really one of the final steps of successful graft formation. We need to form a vascular connection between our shoot and our root. So we're forming flow and xylem. So this whole process, it depends a bit on the plant species. Uh, in our lab, we're working with the model plant, Arabidopsis thaliana, and there you might expect graft formation to be completed within a week. And that's really remarkable. For those of you who don't know Arabidopsis thaliana, Arabidopsis is the model plant, but one of the things that makes it a good model is its small stature. And so you're talking about a plant that when it's fully grown might be two or three centimeters across. And a lot of this work that's being done by these laboratories is being done on seedlings. So you're trying to basically fuse two pieces together that are less than a millimeter in size. So it's really, really like microsurgery that they're doing. Pretty remarkable. But that's where you can learn about the genetics. That's right. I mean, the plants we're working with are absolutely tiny. So we do everything under microscopes uh, using microdissection vascular surgery tools um, and, you know, on petri dishes. So everything is done on the micro scale. So it makes it technically quite challenging, especially when you learn to graft. But the advantage is we can do high throughput grafting. So we can do somewhere between 60 and 100 grafts per hour. And because they're so small, they take up almost no space. If we were working with apple trees, you know, we would need, you know, acres and acres of land to have hundreds of plants growing. But here you can fit a couple hundred plants in a very, very small space. So it allows us to do uh, really high throughput studies. Yeah, that's all good. And, you know, Rabbitopsis has a lot of advantages and disadvantages. But what are some of the other advantages of using the model system? I mean, it's, it's the model plant, um, you know, very well described genome, relatively small genome, very easy to grow, very easy to work with. Um, I mean, one of the major questions we get asked is what relation does Arabidopsis have to other plants that are commercially grafted? So, of course, we don't eat Arabidopsis thaliana. So if we discover fundamental processes about grafting in Arabidopsis, will they apply to other species? And at the moment, it looks like things are absolutely working that way, uh, which 
which is very encouraging. So things we're discovering in Arabidopsis are also relevant for tomatoes, which are commonly grafted. And it looks like things are also working very well uh, with us looking in things like uh, spruce trees and pine trees that are also commercially grafted. Well, I do have anecdotal evidence, and I don't know from who, that has been eaten and it has been smoked. But that's, uh, you know, that's, I don't know much about that. Um, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're talking with Dr. Charles Melnick. He's a group leader for the Division of Plant Sciences at Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. So we'll be back in just a moment. At a time of national weirdness, you can count on this podcast to continue to deliver scientifically based information to protect you and your community. And that's where you come in. As a connoisseur of science, you have a special role in a worldwide pandemic. As in any crisis, charlatans will emerge, peddling poison ideas, bogus nostrums, and magical solutions. They have the capacity to harm others, some permanently, or at least separate them from their dollars or their coveted toilet paper. Use podcasts like the Talking Biotech Podcast to fortify yourself with the best possible information. Then work diligently to fight against misinformation. You have an obligation to oppose the viral carpetbaggers that will inevitably haunt the elderly, coerce the skeptical of the medical system, and poison the internet with conspiratorial nonsense that only delays science-based cures. Yes, these are strange times, but silver linings are everywhere. COVID-19 will end the anti-vax movement. You'll see reprioritization of science. You'll see changes in how the average person perceives the noise from those fighting against science and ultimately harming the poorest among us. This is our time to shine, science people. Study hard, engage, and let's turn this crisis into an opportunity to demonstrate the value of science in solving humanity's most pressing issues. Now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Charles Melnick. He's a group leader in the Division of Plant Biology at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. And we're talking about grafting. And we left off talking about Arabidopsis thaliana, the model plant. And one of the other huge advantages of Arabidopsis is the ability to leverage genomics and genetics resources. We know so much about what genes are expressed, when and where, and really can start to learn about any process by examining the fingerprints and the signatures of gene expression in specific tissues and context, developmental states, that kind of stuff. So what's happening when we start to attach one piece of one plant to another? Is there anything that's a signature of uh, molecular or, or uh, gene expression at that junction? So when we look at uh, gene expression changes, I mean, they, they largely mirror the physiology of what we're seeing. So, you know, we see genes associated with cell division active, uh, activating 
happening fairly rapidly. We see uh, processes associated with differentiation also rapidly activating things like vascular tissue, phloem, xylem formation. Um, there was two things when we've done a lot of deep sequencing at the graft junction that was a little bit surprising. The first thing that we discovered is that the scion tends to activate everything first. So, you know, you have these two pieces that are being stuck together. And at least in a Arabidopsis, it seems like the scion, the top part is leading the process. Cell division, cell differentiation, the repair mechanisms are activating there a day or two earlier than the bottom part. The second thing that we found out that was a little bit surprising is that it seems that gra- plants know that they're being grafted. Uh, they have a way of sensing it that appears to be occurring extremely rapidly. So if you just wound a plant, if you cut it and you don't stick it back together, the plant will also freak out. It'll have all sorts of stress responses. It'll also cause cell division differentiation, but it'll do something a little bit differently if you actually stick the pieces back together. As soon as you get contact, the plant will actually start changing an expression pattern very differently. And in a Arabidopsis, even within six hours of grafting, we already have this recognition process. Wow, that's really cool, but it's consistent with the idea of this being a rapid response to wound healing. But are there other ways that the two pieces talk to each other, like any long-distance signals that are really informing the scion from the rootstock? What's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of information about that, and it's very much one thing that we're interested in working with. But we think one long-distance signal that's incredibly important is the plant hormone auxin. So we know auxin is being produced in the upper part of the plant and it's moving down to the roots. And auxin is there to help the plant grow, help the plant develop, and also form vascular tissue. And we know that if we perturb the ability for the plant to sense or produce auxin, we can basically shut down graft formation. So very important. And we think auxin is also the signal that's actually allowing the graft to recognize what's happening. So it's a long distance signal that's being produced in one tissue. It's acting at a morphogen when it arrives at the junction. And as long as the auxin has a tissue to cross to on the other side, it can actually jump across and start activating a lot of these sort of graft sensor or graft recognition genes that we think are occurring. There's probably lots of other long distance compounds, but at the moment, auxin seems to be the best described. Yeah, it's really consistent with what we've observed in tissue culture, too, that when you take segments of a stem or segments of a petiole, this kind of uh, vascular-rich tissue, and you place it on a plate of nutrient media containing auxin, you find that the bicipital end, so the end that's closest to the ground of the plant, that one uh, tends to be uh, more active in differentiating and looking for a partner. You know, it seems like it starts to blow up with callus and really start to figure out uh, looking for someone to bind to. But this whole uh, science is really intriguing, and the way it's being used today is especially interesting, that you're actually using the biology of a graft junction to create new species or generate huge amounts of genetic variation. And could you share with us a little bit about how that process works? That's right. I mean, the the traditional way of using grafting was to create a chimeric organism. So you would take the best of two organisms and you could deploy this in the field. And this would work really, really well for species that live more than a couple months. You know, it wouldn't make sense to do this with rice or wheat plants because they're going to be harvested. So you don't want to spend a lot of time grafting. But for things that are going to live a long time, then it works well. But more recently, there's been some really interesting developments where it looks like cells at the graft junction are actually exchanging genetic material. 
They might be doing this through cell fusion. So you get two cells that are coming together and fusing at the wound site, or they might actually be moving their genetic material from one cell to the other via plasma desmata. And there's been some very clever experiments where they can actually identify these hybrid cells that form at the junction. You can take out these hybrid cells, and then you can actually regenerate plants from these using traditional tissue culture techniques. And what's actually happened is they've taken two different species. They still have to be graft compatible. You have to be able to graft them, but you can actually get hybrids between them that wouldn't naturally occur during sexual reproduction. So we're using these sort of asexual reproductive means to create novel species. And I think this could be potentially a game changer in the field uh, if we can start deploying this more widely. Yeah, but the obvious limitation is there are only certain related plants that can be put together and combined in this way. So what are the actual limiters and how are those defined, say, at a molecular or biochemical level that separate those two species from being compatible? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, basically, I mean, we refer to this as graft compatibility and graft incompatibility. And it's it's a pretty major field. So when you when you do your grafting, you want to make sure things are going to work and it's not going to cause any, any major issues. And to have a successful graft, the plants typically have to be fairly closely related. So the more closely related the plants, the higher the success of grafting. Uh, you, you need to have you know, a good graft junction. So it's a bit like an art, you know, the more closely you can make the the graft, the more physical contact, uh, if you use younger tissue, then things will generally work uh, much, much better. Uh, We also know that there's things that can promote graft junction formation and things that can inhibit graft junction formation. Uh, So a nice example is if you do grafts between a pear and a quince tree, the quince can actually produce compounds that can be quite toxic to the pear uh, under certain conditions. So you have to be very careful what graft combinations you pick. Yeah, that's very true. And interesting because uh, quince is frequently, well, has been used at least in some cases as a rootstock for pears. So that happens. The other issue we have is kind of the readiness of the graft and the roots or the scion and the rootstock to be put together. So we do one uh, with uh, something called chayfruit, mandarin, melonberry. It's a cadrania species. And this thing can graft onto osage orange, but the orange uh, well, it's not really an orange, but the, the, this tree species uh, doesn't sucker the way that uh, the scion does and also flowers earlier. So if we um, want to graft this on, the scion tends to wake up a little bit before the rootstock is ready. So you don't have sap flowing. It's not quite ready to roll. So it's a question of managing your rootstocks, keeping them in a warm and humid environment, keeping the scions a little colder, and then kind of putting them together when they're most likely to come together. So that's one of the factors. But what are some of the other factors that can affect the ability of these two things to work together? I mean, there's some some nice examples with cell types. So we, we've always considered the monocots to be ungraftable. And the reason for that is because they're missing vascular cambium. So they're basically lacking the stem cells that you find in, in, in normal plant stems that differentiate and then can give rise to efficient graft formation. So we know gymnosperms can graft very easily. We know that uh, dicots can also graft very easily. But it seems that monocots do not have this ability. So nice examples. I mean, you basically need to have the right stem cells there present in your stem to be able to get successful graft formation. So are people trying to use things like intercalary meristems and that kind of thing? That's right. And they get low success rates. So it is possible. You can get a couple percent success. There's also been a couple monocot species that seem to graft more efficiently than others. So instead of getting a 1% success rate, you know, there's been reports in the literature of maybe 
you know, definitely higher levels uh, with some very, very select species. Um, but this is, you know, a bit of a black box and it's definitely work that our lab is currently trying to figure out uh, and try to get, uh, you know, things improved with at least the, the monocot situation. So we very much, you need, you need the right cell types. Um, you know, you need to have the growth regulators there present. I mean, auxin, like I said earlier, I mean, we think that's incredibly important for graft formation, but actually all plants produce auxin. So auxin on its own cannot explain why some things graft and some things don't, but you certainly need to have auxin in the right place and right time. Uh, toxic compounds, big problem. So a lot of plants don't have compatibility there. Something that's a good secondary metabolite in one plant might be toxic in the other. Yeah, and, and listeners may be wondering, why would you possibly want to graft monocots? Like you're not going to do a lawn or a field of wheat or something like that. But there are a lot of economically important monocots, like uh, bananas, for instance, that would be very helpful to be able to have a superior rootstock that might impart some sort of disease resistance to a scion. Um, are there other examples like that that, yeah. that, that, that uh, you can think of? Yeah, I mean, with, with monocots, um, you know, of course, it would be things like, uh, like you said, I mean, oil palms, bananas, date palms. Um, so there would be some economic interest, but at least for me, it's also scientific interest to try to figure out uh, what's going on with this different group of plants. Well, the other place where this technology is really of interest is in transgenics. So here in the state of Florida, we have a problem with citrus disease. And the question of, could you engineer, genetically engineer a rootstock to impart some sort of disease resistance to the scion where the scion isn't transgenic, so not regulated. But how would that be regulated? And has anyone had a discussion about this in, say, either the EU or in the U.S., how that would work? So I think it's it's a really nice suggestion. Um, and at least for, you know, a lot of these bacterial pathogens that are wiping through, you know, the citrus uh, in Florida, we have the olive groves in, in Southern Europe, we have the kiwis in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, in all cases, I think grafting could actually present a really nice solution taking these uh, genetically modified rootstocks. And there's a term for this, which is called transgrafting. So you're combining a GM rootstock with your, your wild type uh, scion. And the regulation is really fuzzy. I mean, basically, people aren't sure what to make of these chimeric plants because you're combining a GM plant with a non-GM plant. Uh, in Europe, they have a little bit more clarity. And basically there, because the, the plants have been uh, grafted with a GM plant, the, the, the organism itself is considered genetically modified. So if you try to release these plants into the environment, then you have to get all your normal GM uh, uh, permits for that. But interestingly, in Europe, they defined the food as having a different regulation than the plant themselves. And it seems that for the most part, food that would be derived from one of these transgrafted plants would not actually be defined as being GM because the fruit itself doesn't actually contain foreign DNA, or it should not contain any foreign DNA. Uh, in the U.S., it's again, you know, a little bit of a, a, a murky situation how you would regulate these. But, you know, to be honest, it's probably going to be something along these lines that you have to think of the environmental consequences of having a GM plant, even if it's a rootstock present in your field, but that the fruit itself or the products from this graft are very likely not going to be considered GM because you're going to have extremely low levels of genetically modified products uh, in those fruits. So, and I think it could be extremely promising. I mean, you can think of the risks of having a transgenic rootstock are much, much lower than a transgenic plant. I mean, there should be no pollen production. There should be no seed production. You know, the risk of these escaping to the environment is very low. Yeah, but just the concept really muddies the water because recently we've even had increased discussions on things like mutagenesis. 
that France has said, well, we're going to start to really look at this because it's never been tested, it's never been evaluated. And so they're really starting to look at genetic improvement uh, with this, a very different lens. And could that actually be applied to grafting? I mean, you're you're creating essentially a new organism with different gene expression, um, different physiology, changes obviously occurring sometimes at the secondary metabolite level. And so with this, do you think that there is a potential for additional revisiting and more regulation? Or do you think just because it's an ancient historical practice that it's going to be treated differently and get some sort of a pass? I'm not aware of any sort of regulations or people who are investigating this. And I think it's precisely for the reason that you said. So we've had this technique for two or 3,000 years. It's been instrumental to the French wine industry. And, you know, I would be very surprised if, if people start looking at this from a very critical point of view. Um, you know, I've basically, I mean, the, the, the fruits that are produced from these grafted plants, you know, there's, in theory, there's actually very few changes from the normal fruits that are produced from an ungrafted individual. Well, very good. You know, that, that makes sense. What about examples from nature where this is happening? So we have this thing called striga, where it's fusion to another plant as part of its life history. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? So parasitic plants are brilliant. Um, and our lab started working on them a couple of years ago because precisely we think that they are doing something very analogous to grafting. So widespread pathogens, something like 1% of all flowering plants have a parasitic lifestyle. And they basically find another plant growing close to them. And they'll actually latch onto that host plant, fuse its tissues, and then form vascular connections between the parasite to its host to withdraw nutrients. And in some cases, these vascular connections are actually very similar to the ones that we see at the graft junction. They can also form phloem and xylem. And the thing that's remarkable about parasitic plants is many parasitic plant species have very few barriers. So in grafting, things have to be really, really closely related. If you don't have two species that are in the same genus or in the same family, it's basically not going to work. But parasitic plants, you can get a dicot infecting uh, a, mo a monocot. Uh, so a good example is striga infecting rice. And that's absolutely no problem. It can be a very, very efficient interaction. And we're basically, in our group at least, we're trying to figure out, you know, what are parasitic plants doing? Uh, how is this similar or different to grafting? And then can we use this technology in graft formation? Well, that would just be amazing. Can you imagine being able to really cross, uh, well, or uh, reassemble a plant from parts that came from remarkably different species? You know, especially in areas where maybe you have some salt soils or, you know, soils with specific challenges that now you can begin to take adapted rootstocks and be able to uh, add on something of economic importance. That's, that would be revolutionary. But what is the realistic nature of this? And what are the next edges of this particular field? Where, where is your research and other research in this area going next? Well, that's right. I mean, we have short-term and we have long-term goals. And of course, a long-term dream goal would be some of the things you've described. So if we can really start to increase the, the species barriers, because with, with more different types of species that we can graft to each other, that we can get, you know, huge phenotypic differences. We can take things that can grow in salt flats, and then we can grow them to our commercially uh, important or relevant 
uh, crops that we would now today. And then it allows you to grow crops in places that we've never imagined possible before. So that would be, you know, a very, very long term dream distant uh, 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 role. But, you know, in the more immediate future, I mean, we're focusing on things like our graft recognition sensors. So like I said a little bit earlier on the podcast, I mean, we basically have these genes that activate very, very rapidly when we have successful graft formation. And then we're basically trying to graft different species to each other, things that are successful and things are not successful, and trying to figure out how our sensors behave under these different conditions. And not only do we see changes in expression, but we also see different patterns of where these things are activating. And we think this might be informative to tell us why things are working and why things aren't working. We're also uh, very interested in incompatibility, uh, focusing on that, uh, trying to figure out factors that why plants are not grafting. And we've also gotten quite interested recently in actually working in forestry. So grafting for a very long time has been in horticulture and agriculture. And forestry, I think, is also something that could potentially benefit from grafting. Because you can imagine we have these trees, they're planted in the, the you know, in the, the billions every year globally. Um, and I think there's strong potential there for genetic improvement through grafting for either disease resistance, uh, vigor, uh, or stress tolerance. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think that you are sitting in the proverbial catbird seat with mm-hmm. respect towards relevant research and really cool things to explore, both in a basic sense, but also in application. And some of the breeding and other genetic improvement techniques coming from this will be huge. So if people want to follow this more carefully, is there a place that they could look online or maybe follow you on social media? Like, what's the best place for them to get more information about your program? That's right. So I mean, people can can find me on the uh, the, the 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 Swedish University of Agricultural uh, University website, uh, and they can also find me. I have a lab website, so melniklab.com. I'm also on Twitter uh, and and some of the other social media uh, websites that are out there, and people are welcome to contact me or read more about my research there. So that's at Charles Melnick on Twitter. At Charles Melnick. And I really would encourage people to follow you and uh, follow the progress of the projects because it's really a great blend of basic and uh, potential application in science. And really appreciate that you took the time to work with us today and on the Talking Biotech podcast. So uh, best wishes and thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks very much for your time, Kevin. And thank you, listeners, for continuing to listen and support the Talking Biotech podcast. It was only, what, a month or two ago that I was looking at shutting down this entire operation. And it's, uh, it, it's very good to be able to continue to continue speaking in this medium. I really appreciate your support in Patreon. It's allowed me to find a producer and cover some of the other associated costs, which then allows me to participate in other media. So I'm currently working with Cameron English over at the Genetic Literacy Project. Uh, every week we get together for Science Facts and Fallacies, which comes up every, I guess, Wednesday these days. And we cover a variety of scientific topics that we're currently Um, highlighted in the Genetic Literacy Project website. So that's available over at geneticliteracyproject.com and um, comes out every Wednesday. Um, I'll continue to produce new media and we're doing that with your support. So thank you so much for that. And uh, that's the Talking Biotech podcast for today. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech podcast presents the personal view of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. 
comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.